Cleveland won the shine. He moved to Vermont, it's now his haunt, and he came from mayor of Burlington. He ran for the U.S. House, big money for to rouse. Then on to the U.S. Senate he wept, and now he's running for president. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm voting for Bernie. I'm voting for the truth and that's enough he fights for those whose lives are tough and Bernie can't be bought he'd never give a thought to a billionaire's bribes or right-wing jobs like others in D.C. no you can't scare me I'm voting for Backwoods, which you can find on YouTube at People's Production World. At the end of the program, we'll hear The Ballad of Super Bernie by Brian Estes, which that song can be found on the YouTube page Homemade Chicken. And chicken in this case is spelled C-H-I-C-K-N. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. You can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. Or follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you use the app Flipboard, you can follow my magazine in Flipboard called Bernie for President, where I gather and collect a lot of what I'm reading about Bernie Sanders. And you can also check out a link to that magazine on the website Bernie-2016.com. Thanks for listening. Our first story tonight is from ibtimes.com. That's short for International Business Times. And this article is by David Serrata, and it is called Bernie Sanders is GOP Ally in Opposing the Export-Import Bank. And there's actually two people on the byline here, David Serrata and Andrew Perez. Congressional Democrats are ramping up their attacks on Republicans for blocking the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank, a federal agency that provides credit for foreign purchasers of U.S. goods. But their headline-grabbing criticism, which casts the GOP as job killers, puts the Democratic Party at odds with one of its leading presidential candidates, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. 
As a House member, Sanders authored legislation in 2002 that would have forbidden export-import bank support from going to corporations that lay off more U.S. workers than foreign workers. Sanders argued that U.S. taxpayers were effectively subsidizing the offshoring of American jobs, and he noted that companies like General Electric were receiving export-import support even as the company shipped jobs overseas. A majority of House Democrats voted for Sanders' provision to rein in the bank, and Sanders later voted against reauthorizing the bank, along with 26 Democrats. During that debate, Sanders said that, quote, This is an example of where progressives such as myself and conservatives are coming together to protect the American taxpayer and the workers of this country in opposition to an outrageous example of corporate welfare. That line of criticism was a mainstream Democratic position throughout much of the 2000s when George Bush was president. Then-Senator Barack Obama called the bank, quote, little more than a fund for corporate welfare. The politics surrounding the bank abruptly shifted, however, when Obama won the White House. After receiving campaign contributions from various companies that benefit from Exim Bank support, Obama backed legislation to reauthorize its charter. At the same time, with the rise of the Tea Party and with GOP finance, financiers like the Koch brothers railing against what they deemed, quote, corporate welfare, a majority of Republican lawmakers joined Sanders' efforts to eliminate the bank. The recent votes on reauthorization illustrate the shift. In the 2015 Senate votes, stalwart liberals like Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat Ohio, and Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat Wisconsin, who had voted against reauthorization in 2002 as House members, backed the bank as senators. Similarly, 10 House Democrats who voted against the bank in 2002 voted to support it in 2012. Meanwhile, from 2002 to 2012, the number of House Republicans voting against the bank nearly doubled. In 2012 and 2015, Sanders was the only Democratic Party-aligned lawmaker in either congressional chamber to continue voting against the standalone reauthorization bills, and he did not soften his rhetoric. Quote, At a time when almost every major corporation in this country has shut down plants and outsourced millions of American jobs, we should not be providing corporate welfare to multinational corporations through the Export-Import Bank, he said after his June 2015 vote. And story from Vox.com. I believe written by David Roberts. It actually says updated by David Roberts here. So I don't know if there's an additional author. Um, This story is called Bernie Sanders and Jeff Merkley have a new bill to leave fossil fuels in the ground. As I wrote last week in a post on supply-side climate policy, there isn't much of it so far. Plenty of governments have been willing to pass legislation that would reduce demand for fossil fuels by boosting renewables or imposing energy efficiency standards, for example. But But few have been willing to choke off fossil fuel extraction as an explicit strategy for addressing global warming. These projects tend to have an extremely vocal constituencies. 
making them a bit of a political third rail. Now a couple of U.S. senators are trying to shift the conversation. Senators Jeff Merkley, Democrat Oregon, and Bernie Sanders, Independent Vermont, have just introduced the Keep It in the Ground Act, a short but potent bit of legislation that would effectively lock up fossil fuel reserves on U.S. public land. Specifically, it would, quoting from the bill's summary, quote, block all future leases and and non-producing leases for coal, oil, gas, oil shale, and tar sands on all federally owned lands. Block all future leases and end non-producing leases for offshore drilling in the Pacific Ocean and Gulf of Mexico, and prohibit all offshore drilling in the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans. I chatted with Merkley about the bill today, and he stressed that the, quote, climate math, most famously detailed by Bill McKibben, which shows that limiting global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, no, yes, 2 degrees Celsius, will require that some 80% of proven global fossil fuel reserves remain unburned. Quote, of the proven reserves in the world, Merkley said, 10% of them are on American publicly owned land. What's more, he said, decisions about those reserves reverberate because, quote, the leases are often worked for decades into the future, 20, 30 years for gas, up to 50 years for coal. Such decisions are simply not compatible with the rapid conversion away from fossil fuels that is necessary, he said. Indeed, as Katie Valentine writes, the question of U.S. fossil fuel reserves is no small matter from a carbon perspective. Fossil fuels from public lands already make up a significant portion of the United States carbon emissions. According to a Center for American Progress and Wilderness Society report, oil, coal, and gas taken from federally owned lands and waters are responsible for more than 20% of the country's total greenhouse gas emissions. According to one Bureau of Land Management report, 279 million acres of federal lands in the U.S. contain an estimated total of 31 billion barrels of oil and 231 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. It's simply not tenable to nibble away at demand while ignoring that supply, Merkley said. Quote, we have to attack it from every direction. Merkley is under no illusions that the bill will become law anytime soon, or even come to a vote in a body controlled by Republicans. He cited as early co-sponsors Sanders, Barbara Boxer, Ben Cardin, Kirsten Gillibrand, Patrick Leahy, and Elizabeth Warren, but added ruefully, up here on Capitol Hill, too many votes are locked up by the Koch brothers. They really have a firm grip on the U.S. Senate. And that story goes on to detail a little bit more about that particular effort to, you know, take one step towards taking a stand against global warming by reducing the amount of fossil fuels we extract to burn. So in my last episode, I talked a fair amount about the um, previous Democratic debate uh, that happened, I think uh, that was on October 14th. Um, 
one of the things that happened during that debate, uh, the candidates were talking about foreign policy and we're talking about Syria in particular and the no-fly zone and what our stance and our posturing was uh, towards the civil war and civil strife in Syria. And in that conversation, Sanders said clearly, you know, he did not support U.S. ground troops in Syria. And Hillary came back with a very quick and very sharp retort and said, well, nobody does. And at in the moment, I, I said points for Hillary, the way that she delivered her response seemed uh, clear and decisive that that was not even an option that was on the table that was under consideration. But lo and behold, a couple of weeks go by and we get this headline. Pentagon, U.S. to begin, quote, direct action on the ground, unquote, in Syria and Iraq. And uh, this first story is from crooksandliars.com. And do not see an author byline here. Uh, It's pretty brief. Quote, we won't hold back from supporting capable partners in opportunistic attacks against ISIL or conducting such missions directly, whether by strikes from the air or direct action on the ground, Carter said. And uh, see if it identifies Carter here. Um, Defense Secretary Ashton Carter is the Carter in question. Uh, Carter said in testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee using an alternative name for the militant group. So he called um, uh, the group that is often known as ISIS, ISIL. Carter pointed last to last week's rescue operation with Kurdish forces in northern Iraq to free hostages held by ISIS. Carter and Pentagon officials initially refused to characterize the rescue operation as U.S. boots on the ground. However, Carter said last week that the military expects, quote, more raids of this kind and that the rescue mission, quote, represents a continuation of our advise and assist mission. This may mean some American soldiers, quote, will be in harm's way. No question about it, Carter said last week. So that's one story that directly refutes Hillary's uh, retort to Bernie saying he did not support ground troops in Syria. And here's another from Inquisitor.com. United States troops enter Syria as Donald Trump warns Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, I think they like to throw in the Donald Trump to get some more eyes on the story. But here is the story. United States troops have entered Syria. The 50-odd troops will battle alongside rebel forces trying to oust Syrian leader Assad. 
Obama's new Syria effort comes after the president received criticism for insisting, quote, Assad must go while failing to send any U.S. troops to battle against the Syrian leader alongside rebels on the ground. The deployment of the new troops, who are United States Special Operations Forces, is part of a, quote, multifaceted strategy to degrade and ultimately destroy ISIS. ISIS troops are among the rebels fighting in Syria against Assad, and the United States will be aiming to obliterate the ISIS cohort, or at least undermine them, while ousting Assad through cooperation with the more favorable rebel cohort about whom little is actually known. Talk about a recipe for disaster. But if the reality is anything similar, and I suspect it likely is, to how it is described in this article, then, you know, we are in for, I think, um, failure at best and uh, quagmire um, at worst. We're We're going to fight on the side of the people that we're trying to defeat to defeat the person that they want to defeat while we also try to undermine them and defeat them and support the what would what do they call it the more favorable rebel cohort hmm judging from our history this will not go well the Middle East is a place where we get bogged down and locked up. And not only we, many foreign powers, notably the former USSR in Afghanistan, get into conflicts in the Middle East where they feel that their superior firepower and military might and precision will be able to get the job done and fail miserably. So uh, thinking that we are going to be able to pop in with American boots on the ground and that things are going to go well for us there, I think um, history tells a a different story. you know, everywhere from uh, the troops in Beirut, Lebanon, that were killed with a truck bomb on their barracks, um, all kinds of different efforts that we've made in that region have been failures. We've destabilized the Middle East for decades and we're part of why it is in the shape that it is in. Um, you know, there there certainly may have been some of our policies in the past that made some positive changes as well. Uh, but I think the, the negative consequences of our actions in the Middle East uh, seem to far outweigh the positive ones. So... Um, Kudos to Bernie Sanders, who in that first debate stated clearly that he would not support ground troops, U.S. ground troops in Syria, 
when I think many of us, and certainly myself, did not think that was something that was even on the table. And Hillary clearly indicated that she either felt or deflected uh, or misinformed us that nobody wanted that. Um, when in fact, you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, we are facing exactly what Bernie said that he did not support and strongly uh, spoke out against. So uh, Bernie's released a couple of videos, and I think this is part of a series of videos that he will release on various different issues. And so here is Bernie Sanders explaining Social Security. Hi, this is Senator Bernie Sanders. Much of the media often approaches politics as if it were a baseball game or a soap opera. Who's leading in the latest poll? How much money did a candidate raise? Did someone say something really dumb last night? That's what a lot of the media thinks modern politics should be about. I disagree. I'm old-fashioned, I guess. But I think what a campaign in a democratic society is about is the need to discuss and debate the most important issues facing our people and the world. And that's what I want to do now. And by the way, I would very much appreciate your help in getting this video widely distributed. Please share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. The more we raise public consciousness in this country, the better we do and the better our nation does. The issue that I'd like to touch upon today is Social Security, perhaps the most important federal program in existence, a program of enormous consequence to the 59 million seniors, people with disabilities, and children who are beneficiaries. I know you have heard over and over again that Social Security is going broke, that it won't be there for our kids and grandchildren, that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, that Social Security is contributing to our large deficit and national debt, etc., etc., etc. And you've also heard many Republicans tell us that we need to cut Social Security, raise the retirement age, or maybe even privatize the program. Well, I am happy to tell you that much of what you've heard is simply not true. Despite what many of my Republican colleagues are saying, let's be clear. Social Security is not going broke. Social Security has a $2.8 trillion surplus and, according to the Social Security Administration, can pay out every benefit owed to every eligible American for the next 19 years. That is not a program going broke. Further, Social Security is independently funded by the payroll tax the 6.2% of your paycheck that you and your employer pay. That means that Social Security does not add one nickel to the deficit. It has its own source of funding. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that the Republicans forgot to pay for added trillions to the deficit and national debt, not Social Security. Now, the truth is that while we do not have a Social Security crisis today, we do have a retirement crisis, and that is a very serious problem. All over this country, 
millions of Americans, people who have worked their entire lives, are wondering if they will ever be able to retire with any shred of dignity. The sad truth is that, as a result of the collapse of our middle class and declining wages, more than half of older workers between the ages of 55 to 64 have no retirement savings. Imagine that. You're heading to the moment in your life when you're no longer able to work, when you can't earn any income, and you have nothing in the bank. How scary is that? Further, millions of other workers have seen their pensions eliminated or severely cut back. Promises were made to them by their employers, and those promises were not kept. 30 years ago, more than a third of private sector workers had a guaranteed defined benefit pension plan. Today, fewer than 18% do, and that number is shrinking every day. The result is that many of our parents and our grandparents are trying to survive on totally inadequate incomes. Millions of seniors today are trying to make ends meet by the medicine they need, by the food they require, or heat their homes on incomes of $12,000 or $13,000 a year. Frankly, I don't know how they do it. And the truth is that many of them really don't do it. Many of them don't take the medicine that they should. Many of them live in homes that are too cold in the winter. Many of them don't get the nutrition they need in order to stay healthy. That is not how we should treat the seniors of this country. Some of the most vulnerable people in the United States. At a time when the average Social Security benefit is just $1,328 a month, and over a third of senior citizens rely on Social Security for virtually all of their income, our job must be to expand benefits, not cut them. Our job is to strengthen Social Security, not weaken it. Let's be clear. Social Security is the most successful government program in our nation's history. Before Social Security was signed into law, nearly half of senior citizens lived in poverty. Today, while much too high, the elderly poverty rate is about 10%. Let me also be clear in stating that one of the great strengths of Social Security is that through good economic times and bad, Social Security has paid every nickel owed to every eligible American on time and without delay. That is an extraordinary accomplishment and in this unstable economy, something that we should not take for granted. When corporations eliminated defined benefit pension plans over the last 30 years, Social Security was right there paying full benefits. When millions of Americans lost their life savings, after Wall Street's greed and recklessness crashed the economy in 2008, Social Security was right there paying full benefits. Although Social Security's finances will remain strong for the next 19 years, I believe Congress must strengthen and expand Social Security for generations to come. Well, how do we do that? The answer is simple. We demand that the wealthiest Americans in this country pay their fair share into the Social Security system. Today, at a time when almost all new income and wealth is going to the top 1%, a billionaire pays the same amount of money 
into Social Security as someone who makes $118,500 a year. That's because the Social Security payroll tax is capped. If we lift that cap and apply the payroll tax on all income over $250,000 a year, we can do four things. First, we can make sure that Social Security can pay out every benefit owed to every eligible American for the next 50 years. Not 19 years, 50 years. Second, we can expand benefits by an average of $65 a month. Third, we can lift seniors out of poverty by increasing the minimum benefits paid to low-income workers when they retire. Fourth, we can increase cost of living expenses to keep up with the rising cost of health care and prescription drugs. Expanding Social Security by making the wealthiest Americans pay more is not only the right thing to do from a moral perspective, it is good economics and it is what a large majority of the American people want us to do. Our job together is to create an economy which works for all, not just the wealthy and the powerful. Our job is to protect the most vulnerable people in our society, including the elderly and the disabled. Our job is to extend and expand Social Security, not cut it or privatize it. Please work with me to make this happen. And please, get this video out to your friends and family. Thank you very much. And that was the audio from the video, Bernie Sanders Explains Social Security, which you can find on YouTube. This story from critical.me, that is C-R-I-T-I-C-L dot M-E. It is called Why We Burn Bright, Political Involvement in the 2016 Election Cycle. And I'm not clear. There's two different kind of names here. And I don't know which one is specifically the identity of the author. So I will tell you both. One is M-S-N-O-N-O-E-S-Q. And also under that, it says Truth Seeker. Why We Burn Bright, Political Involvement in the 2016 Election Cycle. Here we are, another presidential election season with big choices to make. The battle is in full swing with the candidates trying to build up support and solidify their positions. I am a hashtag black burner and I am with hashtag women for Bernie. I sat down with the intention of writing a response to an article about why black people are not supporting Bernie. But I realized that what we really need is a conversation about how to engage in the political process this election season and beyond. Despite being a black woman from a socially conscious family, I could not adequately articulate reasons for why black people are reluctant to support someone whose platform coincides with many of the issues that have been long neglected in black communities. 
To me, it is a no-brainer. But everyone is different. Like any other segment of the population, we are not a monolithic group, following one supreme platform. While I have fully embraced being part of the growing grassroots movement to change the status quo, there are many of people who aren't, quote, feeling Bernie, or they are, quote, turned off by his supporters. Others say he does not, quote, know how to campaign, unquote, in black communities. That last one should be refreshing. It's true, Bernie isn't well-versed in the practice of greasing palms, kissing rings, and invoking the black church pastor in his speeches. He is a straight shooter from Brooklyn. He pulls no punches when he talks, and he doesn't back down from speaking the truth, not just what sounds good in that moment. Some people find the incessant Bernie news updates and memes annoying. However, we have a message of change and progress, and it must be heard. Change is not easy, but it is absolutely necessary. Gil Scott Heron famously said, quote, The revolution will not be televised. It also will not be published or recorded. This revolution is driven by the people and for the people and with dollars from the people. And it's not just black voters who are wary or reluctant to hashtag feel the burn. Millions of people nationwide are discouraged. They see no reason to get politically active, let alone vote. Leaders in politics, business, and even some in the labor movement ignore the needs of the people and vote for their own interests. They have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Certain members of state and national quote, leadership are deeply entrenched in the political elite in general and in the Democratic Party establishment specifically. They are comfortable working within that system. It has benefited them and, to a lesser extent, their causes. But we have to be real. Those leaders have failed black, brown, and poor communities nationwide on issues such as wage inequality, public school quality, infrastructure development, social security, unemployment, domestic violence, police brutality, high interest rates, and high foreclosure. This election cycle, we must move beyond the rat race of the past 50 years. We must be more critical than ever and make choices differently from how we did in the past. Change is necessary to sustain and maintain, quote, progress. As we have seen with the rollback of voting rights in several places, most notably in Alabama, we cannot rest on our laurels or the laws meant to protect us. Yes, people might sound good and talk a good game, but can they back it up? What have they done when faced with the opportunity to make a positive, lasting impact? Have they done what was politically safe? Or have they taken a stand for what is right? Be sure you know your candidate and not just the public face put forward. I believe there are three basic things everyone should do this election season to be better informed in the voting process. One, figure out why you are, quote, feeling or, quote, or not, quote, feeling a particular candidate. It is okay to not like someone, but you should be able to clearly articulate why you feel or think the way you do about that person. 
Two, move beyond the sound bites. Move beyond that one headline you read or that one article you skimmed through. Check the sound bites and promises against voting records. Go to the candidates' pages and read their plans and proposals. Go to neutral websites to see where candidates stand on issues that matter to you. See who donates money to them. Read what other people are saying about those plans. Also, quick check social media posts to make sure it is even accurate. Far too often we post, share, and tweet information that sounds good but isn't accurate. 3. Figure out where your personal moral political philosophy is and nurture. Find groups and candidates that are consistent with where you stand. Can't find one? Be bold, start a new group, and invite others to join you. Tap into existing social networks to help find others in your area who may see things the way you do. Some people have expressed stressful interactions with Bernie supporters. It has been said that we are annoying and condescending, among other things. For the most part, grassroots volunteers for Bernie are tired of the needs of the people not being met. We are tired of politics as usual, and we're pushing ahead against a huge political machine that would rather silence us than see us win. We do not simply need change we believe in or hope. We need to revitalize the working and middle class and provide meaningful opportunities for all and not just the super wealthy. It can happen if people decide that it's something worth fighting for. All movements have growing pains, but we need to take the time to reflect and evaluate strategies and messaging messaging, as we are moving along in our work. No matter how righteous our quest, there is always space to adjust approaches and tweak messaging. We can be passionate and committed without being condescending and judgmental. There is much at stake. Sometimes it is good to take a step back and see the big picture. We are running a marathon, not a 100-meter sprint. Whether we like it or not, as members of a grassroots movement, we are de facto representatives of our candidate. We need to make sure we are communicating in a manner that is consistent with the campaign's overall goals and objectives. Know your audience and adjust accordingly. Even if you are not officially aligned with the campaign, modeling the behavior of the candidate we support will go a long way in terms of building goodwill with potential voters. Arrogant, condescending commentary will not help our cause. From the hood to the hollers, We have to put forth our best efforts in the fight for 2016 and beyond. In order to have real meaningful change in our communities, we must use our networks to develop and nurture talent at the local and state levels. This isn't some corporate shill campaign with multi-million dollar war chests. This is a people-powered movement. We are about people. Feedback, criticism, and input from other supporters and undecided folks is crucial, but it's got to be constructive. Vague comments help nobody. Mere naysaying without concrete feedback hinders progress. In addition, we need to work hard to organize and mobilize voters from underrepresented populations. People power is essential to ensuring the promises of equality for all. 
Although certain candidates may be more admired or folks are nostalgic for a time long past, we need practical solutions and a commitment to dramatic change. We cannot discount the value of interacting with others and helping them actualize the full potential of their power. Contrary to popular belief, voting is power. To people sitting on the sidelines, get involved. Help shape the policy and initiatives you wish to see addressed. Demanding that candidates do X, Y, and Z is great, but discussing why those initiatives matter and helping to shape the policy is even better. Demanding changes without specifics will leave you even more unsatisfied than when you first engaged in the process. How much more are we willing to take before we stop accepting business as usual? How do we reach people who have been cheated out of their vote? Every election cycle, we hear people say, quote, vote for the lesser of two evils. In every election cycle, we see candidates who appeal to the fears and prejudices cultivated by years of misinformation and underdevelopment. In both scenarios, hardworking people lose out while big business and friends keep blossoming. It is well past time to take our country back from the top 1%. Together we can overcome every obstacle and dismantle corporate America's stranglehold on the nation. I am all in with Bernie 2016, but I know many people who either are not, quote, feeling him or are on the fence. Still others happily support different candidates. Regardless of whom you support, I hope we can continue to motivate and engage new and old voters alike. Voting is only one of many ways in which we can create sustainable, positive change in our communities and country. Electing a president with a progressive platform is a lofty goal, but it can become reality when the people fully embrace it. We need to step outside our comfort zones, listen to what other people need, and speak up when we must. So that was a longer piece, but I found that to be a really, really well-written uh, piece about what it means to be supporting a candidate in uh, this particular election cycle, and I think speaks to a lot of the enthusiasm that people are feeling in finding a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who articulates the positions that many of us hold and many us many of us feel are very important and have been really grossly underrepresented in our political system. South Carolina is one of the early voting states, and this story is from theminorityeye.com. 1,000 South Carolina women endorse Bernie Sanders for president. In a signal of the growing support for U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in South Carolina, more than 1,000 women across the state have endorsed his candidacy. Quote, we are thrilled to have such a broad enthusiasm among local women for Senator Sanders, State Director Christopher Covert said Wednesday. Sanders has fought for women's rights and economic fairness throughout his life, and the support in South Carolina reflects the national movement of American women joining our campaign. Cristal Spain, the South Carolina Director of Political Outreach, said that, quote, 
As a black woman and a single mother, it was crucial to support a candidate who has demonstrated a commitment to advocating for me and the issues that impact my community. Senator Sanders has been a champion of civil rights and economic equality for women for 30 years, and I am proud to endorse him. Dr. Gloria Tanubu, the first African-American woman in the state to win the Democratic nomination for Congress, believes that, quote, Sanders is in the tradition of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who led our parents and grandparents through one of the most challenging times in our nation's history. Like President Roosevelt, Bernie is fighting to protect our democratic way of life and our four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. A new Clemson University Palmetto poll shows that nearly one in two South Carolina Democratic primary voters remain undecided about whom to support in the February primary. In addition to getting some support or publicizing some support among women in South Carolina, Bernie is building up his team. And this article from BuzzFeed.com by Adrian Carasquillo. Sure, I pronounced that terribly. Bernie Sanders has just hired the best-known immigration activist in the country. Erica Andiola, the most well-known immigration activist in the country, is joining the Bernie Sanders campaign, according to three sources with knowledge of the hire. It's a big splash in the immigration movement, as Andiola is respected up and down the loosely connected advocacy apparatus that includes groups close to the Democratic establishment, groups far to the left, and undocumented immigrants in local communities where Andiola has worked across the country. Andiola joins her boyfriend Cesar Vargas, himself a high-profile dreamer activist, who was hired by Sanders last week and will also focus on Latino outreach in the southwest states, with Nevada and its early caucus a focal point. Andiola declined to comment for this story. But behind the scenes, she has been involved in the Democratic primary process for months, as each major campaign has reached out to her for suggestions and advice on immigration policy. Before Hillary Clinton even announced that she was running for president, her national political director, Amanda Renteria, was talking to Andiola on the phone, and after Clinton's major spring event in May, they exchanged emails for the campaign to connect with policy experts. The campaign would go on to hire another advocate, Lorella Preelli, from advocacy organization United We Dream, to lead Latino outreach. Andiola has long explained that her objective during the cycle was to push Clinton, the presumed favorite for the Democratic nomination, to the left on immigration. Now she joins Sanders, who has now hired a string of activists long involved in immigration battles. In addition to Andiola and Vargas, the Sanders campaign recently hired Arturo Carmona of Presente to lead Latino outreach and named Javier Gonzalez, formerly of SEIU, the campaign's Nevada field director. So Sanders doing a considerable amount to build up his team in Nevada and throughout the Southwest 
of the country. So this story from HuffingtonPost.com. Bernie Sanders to propose taking marijuana off the government's most dangerous substances list. Senator Bernie Sanders, who is seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, will call on Wednesday, and that's actually today, and he did file a bill today, for marijuana to be removed from the federal government's list of the most dangerous substances, according to the Washington Post. The United States has five categories for drugs and drug ingredients under the Controlled Substances Act. Schedule 1 is reserved for what the Drug Enforcement Administration considers to be the, quote, most dangerous drugs, lacking currently accepted medical value and carrying the highest potential for abuse. Marijuana is classified as a Schedule 1 drug alongside substances like heroin and LSD. The Washington Post first reported that an event with college students Wednesday evening at George Mason University in Virginia, Sanders would say marijuana should be taken off the Schedule 1 list. And that was actually an event that was held last week. A Gallup poll from last week found that 58% of Americans support legalizing marijuana, but the poll question did not distinguish between recreational and medicinal legalization. So Sanders did file a bill today, and that bill would do a couple of different things. It would um, remove the federal ban on marijuana. It would allow states to um, regulate marijuana in whichever ways they deemed fit. And I don't have the full text, but I believe it probably also would do what was suggested here in taking marijuana off that most dangerous substances list. So uh, Bernie Sanders following through with his pledge to really decriminalize marijuana at the federal level um, by filing that legislation to do so in the Senate. In this story from the Sanders website, sanders.senate.gov, from October 20th, Sanders calls for probe into ExxonMobil claims on climate change. Senator Sanders asked the Department of Justice to investigate potential fraud by ExxonMobil Corp over conflicts in what it knew and what it told the public and shareholders about the cause of climate change. In a letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Sanders asked for a probe into what he called a, quote, potential instance of corporate fraud by the oil giant. Quote, ExxonMobil knew the truth about fossil fuels and climate change and lied to protect their business model at the expense of the planet, Sanders said. He likened ExxonMobil's conduct to claims by the tobacco industry about the health risks associated with smoking. In his letter, Sanders cited an investigation by Inside Climate News, the nonprofit nonpartisan news organization, which suggested that ExxonMobil scientists conducted extensive research on climate change as early as 1977. The company's scientists reportedly found that climate change is real and caused partly by carbon pollution from petroleum products. Nevertheless, the world's fourth largest oil company, 
participated in an industry-wide public relations campaign which cast doubt about the emerging scientific consensus on global warming. Since 1998, ExxonMobil pumped $31 million into think tanks and organizations that tried to sow doubts about mainstream climate science. Quote, these reports, if true, raise serious allegations of a misinformation campaign that may have caused public harm, similar to the tobacco industry's actions, conduct that led to federal racketeering convictions, Sanders wrote in the letter to the nation's top law enforcement officer. Quote, based on available public information, it appears that Exxon knew its product was causing harm to the public and spent millions of dollars to obfuscate the facts in the public discourse. The information that has come to light about Exxon's past activities raises potentially serious concerns that it should be that should be investigated. So that is Sanders calling for an investigation of Exxon Mobil and their what appears to possibly be a cover up of what they discovered, you know, from studies going back as far as to as early as 1977 about their role in contributing to climate change. And finally, this story from Alternet.org. Bernie gets it done. Sanders' record of pushing through major reforms will surprise you. This by Zaid Jelani. Quote, I'm a progressive, but I'm a progressive who likes to get things done, Hillary Clinton said at the first Democratic debate in response to a question from moderator Anderson Cooper about whether she defines herself as a moderate or a progressive. The implication was that progressive Bernie Sanders is too far to the left to accomplish anything. All of his ideas are pie in the sky. You have to be able to find the bipartisan, quote, warm purple space as Clinton said earlier this year, to get anything done. Slate's Jamel Bowie was super impressed by this rationale, saying Clinton has, quote, skilled use of bureaucratic power. The problem with this narrative is that it is completely false. Not only has Sanders gotten a lot more things done than Clinton did in her own short legislative career, he's actually one of the most effective members of Congress, passing bills both big and small that have reshaped American policy on key issues like poverty, the environment, and health care. The Amendment King Congress is not known to be a progressive institution lately, to say the least. Over the past few decades, the House of Representatives was only controlled by the Democrats from 2007 to 2010, and a flood of corporate money has quieted the once-powerful progressive movement that passed legislation moving the country forward between the New Deal era and the Great Society. Yet, as difficult as it may be to believe, a socialist from Vermont is one of its most accomplished members. Bernie Sanders was first elected to the House of Representatives in 1990, and many immediately doubted, doubted his efficacy. Quote, it is virtually impossible for an independent to be effective in the House, said then-Congressman then Bill Richardson. Quote, as an independent, you are kind of a homeless waif, said Representative Barney Frank. 
As if things didn't look bad enough, in 1994, the Republicans swept into power in the House of Representatives, dashing the hopes of many that Congress could do anything progressive whatsoever. But Sanders was not content with tilting at windmills. He didn't want to just take a stand. He wanted to pass legislation that improved the United States of America. He found his vehicle in legislative amendments. Amendments in the House of Representatives are often seen as secondary vehicles to legislation that individual members sponsor, but they are an important way to move resources and build bipartisan coalitions to change the direction of the law. Despite the fact that the, that the most right-wing Republicans in a general election in a generation controlled the House of Representatives between 1994 and 2006, the member who passed the most amendments during that time was not a right-winger like Bob Barr or John Boehner. The amendment king was, instead, Bernie Sanders. Sanders did something particularly original, which was that he passed amendments that were exclusively progressive, advancing goals such as reducing poverty and helping the environment, and he was able to get bipartisan coalitions of Republicans who wanted to shrink government or hold it accountable, and progressives who wanted to use it to empower Americans. Here are a few examples of the amendments Sanders passed by building unusual but effective coalitions. Corporate Crime Accountability Sanders' amendment to the Victims Justice Act of 1995 required, quote, offenders who are convicted of fraud and other white-collar crimes or give notice to victims and other persons in cases where there are multiple victims eligible to receive restitution. Saving money for colleges and taxpayers. In an amendment to H.R. 6, the Higher Education Amendments of 1998, Sanders made a change in the law that allowed the Fund for Improvement of Post-Secondary Education to make competitive grants available to colleges and universities that cooperated to reduce costs through joint purchases of goods and services. In holding IRS accountable and protecting pensions, Sanders' amendment to the Treasury and General Government Appropriations Act of 2003 stopped the IRS from being able to use funds that, quote, violate current pension age discrimination laws. In expanding free health care, uh, Sanders was able to win a $100 million increase in funding with an amendment uh, for community health centers. Getting tough on child labor, Sanders' amendment to the General Appropriations Bill prohibited the importation of goods made with child labor, increasing funding for heating for the poor. Sanders won a $22 million increase for the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program and Related Weatherization Assistance Program. In fighting corporate welfare, Sanders' amendment brought together a bipartisan coalition that outnumbered a bipartisan coalition on the other side to successfully prohibit the Export-Import Bank from providing loans for nuclear projects in China. And uh, this particular story goes on for uh, a bit longer with some additional um, amendments and additional uh, legislation that Sanders had supported or put pushed through um, and got enacted. So... Uh, there have been some some people out there who who don't know Sanders and don't know his legislative record and because they don't know it and haven't taken the time to 
take a look at what he has supported and what he has successfully um, gotten enacted in Congress, they claim that he hasn't really done anything in his long time that he has been in Congress. And that is uh, far from the truth. He has been a very, very productive member of Congress in getting a number of progressive um, issues and progressive amendments um, onto other bills that have really moved things forward, you know, um, even while not having the power and the support of the full Congress to enact uh, bigger, bigger measures or more sweeping measures. Uh, Sanders has still been very, very effective and productive. He also was um, the founder of the uh, Progressive um, Caucus in first in the House of Representatives. And um, he continues to be a part of that in the Senate. And that grew from, you know, being non-existent before Sanders got that started to having uh, dozens of members today and being a, a voice and a force in the Congress. So um, a bit about Sanders record of actually getting things done in Congress. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016, the independent podcast following Bernie Sanders campaign, commenting on stories about his campaign and what the candidate is stands for, what he is up to, and uh, how his campaign is faring out there. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at bernie-2016.com. You can send me a message at bernieus2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at bernieus2016. And as we uh, roll out this episode, we are going to listen to part of The Ballad of Super Bernie by Brian Estes. And you can find find that on YouTube, on the YouTube page, Homemade Chicken. Thanks for listening. Scenic Route 100, the Green Mountains of Vermont. I'm driving through with nothing to do, out for a little job. Smile wide and enjoy the ride on a perfect summer day. When a truck with Walmart on the side comes flying the other way. Round the curve it starts to swerve and then it blows a tire. Flips around with a crashing sound and the trailer catches fire. My car's pinned underneath that truck. I know I'm as good as dead. Oh, sakes alive, I had to go for a drive. I should have just stayed in bed. But look, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a pigment of my brain. Hell no, it's Bernie Sanders, come to save my ass again. He picks that truck up off my car, sets it in the breakdown lane, and then he tunes up my transmission. And he sends me on my way Fast as a speeding bullet He's got
got moves like Jackie Chan. Stop a tsunami while making origami and sticking it to the man. You want truth and justice too in a good old American way. No need to fear cause Bernie's here. He's come to Sweet old lady with a walking cane 